Hello, and welcome to the latest in the Walkley Foundation's ongoing podcast series, which brings you the best journalistic talent from Australia and around the world. Well, thank you all for coming today, bright and early. I um, just want to kick things off by, by echoing what was just said, that um, you know, I've been a freelancer for many years uh, and having launched Narratively. Uh, coming up on three years ago, 100% um, of the stories we publish uh, on our site, narrative.ly, are produced by freelancers. So I, of course, have a, a soft spot in my heart for freelancers, um, and I applaud the Walkley Foundation for recognizing how important freelancers are in our industry today and moving forward. Um, so the way I'm going to structure the talk today, um, I have four key lessons about how you as a freelancer, uh, and for those in the room who maybe aren't freelancers and work for a larger organization, how organizations and freelancers can build an audience for their powerful work. Um, so I want to kick things off by, by saying that uh, you know, here's what it felt like for many years, what it felt like to be a great story. Uh, you know, on the top there, you had the clickbait, you know, kind of laughing and pointing fingers. And you know, all too often, those beautiful stories that we all work so hard on and labor over for weeks and for months and for years in some cases, would kind of fall through the cracks and, and really not get the attention that story deserved. Um, you know, I experienced it myself uh, way back when in the early start of my career. I was working for a chain of weekly newspapers in Queens, New York, and I labored for, for months and months over a you know, really powerful series um, about Holocaust survivors living in New York City. And it was a you know, five-week-long, five-part series of in-depth articles uh, with some long-form writing, short documentary films, um, you know, obviously photography, beautifully laid out in our print publications. And the reality was that, sure, these, these stories were getting read in print by the paper circulation, but these videos that I was personally proud of that really provided this uh, you know, the singular view into the lives of these people who had lived through the Holocaust, um, those videos, I think, got something like 100 views each. And, uh, you know, I mean, granted, this was in the early days of web video, but that was still pretty pathetically small. Um, fast forward to now, just in recent months, one of Narratively's 2,000 contributors, a woman named Annalisa Morelli, who actually happens to work at Quartz, by the way, which is a very uh, reputable news outlet in the U.S. now, um, but she still freelances for us. She published a story um, called My Disappearing Fiancé, really powerful memoir piece. Uh, you can probably guess what the story is about. And uh, she ended up you know, taking the initiative to post that story directly on the Facebook page of a very popular author named Cheryl Strayed. Uh, Cheryl wrote a book um, which was turned into the movie Wild, you know, a very popular Hollywood blockbuster in recent months. And just by that simple act of posting that story on her own to Cheryl's uh, Facebook page with a, you know, a very um, kind of authentic plea saying, hey, I you know, thanks for your, your inspiration, Cheryl. I thought you might like my story. Cheryl, of course, you know, took note of that fact and wanted to support a fellow young journalist, reposted that story to her Facebook page, and overnight that story became her most popular piece of the past 10 months. So you know, today I'm going to talk a little bit about some of those small little acts that you can do as freelancers um, to really blow these stories up and hopefully get them the attention they deserve. Um, you know, I think there's no better time than now to be a journalist, to be a storyteller. Um, you know, all directions you look at from Hollywood to the hallowed halls of Madison Avenue where the big advertising firms are in New York City, people are talking about storytelling. You know, it's this buzzword, and I think for better or for worse, it's in the popular lexicon now. Um, the good, the good of that is that, of course, I think that's creating more opportunities for people like you and me in this room who are freelancers. Um, obviously, the traditional mechanisms of publishing work, i.e., the ABC uh, and you know, City Morning Herald and, and the Brisbane Papers and so forth, are still there. And, and you know, maybe some are having some challenges, but they're growing in some regards. And you know, new outlets like New Zulu are, are appearing, and, and opportunities for work uh, in the traditional journalism landscape are growing. 
At the same time, though, uh, Brands, you know, Fortune 500 companies, uh, you know, maybe many of the sponsors that, that support the Walkley Foundation, they're also finding a need to tell their stories and, and break out of the mold and reach consumers beyond the traditional vehicles of advertising and trying to cre reach people in new and effective ways. So nowadays, as a freelancer, you not only have the option of going to a traditional journalism outlet, you can then pitch that story straight to uh, the Coca-Cola magazine or the, or the magazine run by Intel, the tech company. Um, so point being, I think there's a lot of interesting opportunities out there. The challenge, of course, is that because of all of these opportunities, there's a lot of clutter. Um, going back to my first slide, you know, the clickbait unfortunately tends to rise to the top. Breaking news headlines rule the day. So I think you know, all of us in here who I know are doing really powerful work should take the initiative and, and think really hard and clear about what our goals for. When you write that story or produce that story or shoot that story, what would you be happy with? Um, you know, maybe your goals are different from the company you know, who you're working for. Um, so I think it's very careful. One of the lessons I'll go into today is, is really mapping out a crystal clear vision for your story and, and you know, what is that, what is a, in an ideal scenario, what does the impact look like that that story is having? I mean, obviously we all want to be up on stage winning a Walkley, um, but you know, short of that or maybe in addition to that, you know, what are you trying to do with that piece? Um, so a little bit about narratively first. Uh, you know, we launched in September 2012, and we're uh, an online destination focused on ordinary people with extraordinary stories. Um, so we really try to rise above the noise by focusing on quality versus quantity. We explore a different theme each week uh, and publish just one story a day in a variety of formats, from writing to short documentary films, audio pieces, comics journalism, really whatever's the best you know, mechanism to tell that story. And the idea behind you know, putting one story at a time, or what we call story first, is that every story and every story Teller has the space and time needed to have an impact. Um, so we publish stories like this, um, how the widows of Vrindaban got their color back. This is a really powerful photo essay about a small village in, in India where you know, every year these widows who are forced to wear black um, because their husbands have died and, and they're in perpetual mourning, they're allowed to actually you know, put on some color and they have these beautiful you know, dances and, and ceremonies with you know, colorful powders and dresses. And so it's, it's you know, arguably this one moment uh, in their calendar uh, for that year where they're able to be themselves. Um, or stories like this, you know, really compelling and, and pretty crazy, frankly, um, personal essays. This one, I mean, the headline and the subheadline kind of speak for itself. Uh, it's about one of our writers who had a you know, rather unique experience with his therapist. Um, or pieces like this. Um, you know, this is about a, a guy who decided to take it upon himself to go up against the tide of anti-immigration. And, uh, and he did this stunt in which he kayaked uh, you know, for many, many, many miles across the earth. Um, we, of course, try to, again, present stories in, in a multitude of ways. Uh, and this year, you know, rather simple. It's a text piece with some powerful photos. Unfortunately, the, the GIF isn't as, quite as high quality as we want, but you can see a GIF there on the screen. It's little accents we do to kind of bring pieces to life further. Um, the cool thing, of course, now is that you know, people are hungry for content. Um, you know, obviously, I'm hungry at narratively for stories. We need more people like you. Um, we would love to publish more from Australia, by the way, a little shameless plug. So if you have ideas, please come up to me and, and send them to us. Um, but I also think from a consumer standpoint, you know, we, people crave content. Uh, you know, I think the, the, the cool thing is that you know, we've all been there. I, I admit I've been there where you read a great story or maybe even the headline of a great story and you share it to social media before you even read it. Because sharing something says something about who we are. It says something about our wit and our intelligence and you know, our belief system. And you know, I think it's not just consumers, of course. It's, it's publishers that are really craving content. And so I think that puts us in a really unique position to take advantage of powerful work. Um, and, and that all comes back to you know, one key thing, and that's community. So each and every story we publish at Narratively, um, we're really starting to think about 
who's the community that we can reach through this story? Um, obviously, the you know the simplest community is, is is pretty straightforward. You know, I think everyone in this room, you know, I'm surprised many times when one of our contributors writes a piece for us, and you know, we go and ask them, oh, did you you know what did your family think, or, or did you share with some social media? How do how do people respond to it? And they say, oh no, I haven't done that yet. So you know that's pretty obvious right right then and there. You know the 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 obvious community for your work are those people who love and admire and respect you and and who have helped you get to where you are. So every single story you publish should you know maybe build an email list of your close family, your friends, former colleagues and mentors, you know, to whom you can send your work. Um, but the important thing is to make it very easy for them. So lesson one is don't be afraid to ask for help, but make it easy for those to help you. Uh, and what I mean by that you know, is, is pretty simple. Um, you know, there's, there's a service out there called clicktotweet.com. There's many, many like, like them. Um, but these types of services make it very easy for you to pre-write a tweet with a link, so that way when your friends and family click on that link, it automatically opens up in their Twitter view. They, they simply you know, make some edits if they want, click post, and that story goes out to all their Twitter followers. So what you're really doing is lowering the barrier to entry. You're making it very easy for people to do the heavy lifting for you. Because um, you know, realistically, people are busy. I know I, I get, you know, unfortunately, thousands of emails a day. I want to support people and, and, and friends of mine. And, um, but if they can make it very easy for me by lowering that barrier and, and you know, simply clicking a button to share their work, I would gladly do that. Um, and there, that, you know, clicktotweet.com is just one of the many, many samples of, of, of uh, platforms out there that allow you to do this. If you just Google around, you'll find some ones that work for you. And, and a lot of them allow you to post straight to Facebook. Um, they allow you to post to Tumblr and all the other social outlets out there. Um, so that's obvious. You know, I think, I think making it easy for people um, should be pretty, pretty simple. Now what we do at Narratively, for instance, is we have you know, an intern, uh, or editor rather now, whose sole, sole job, at least you know, for certain hours of the day, is to send emails out to all of our contributors with simple bullets of saying, hey, your story's, your story's live, congratulations, but you know what, your job's not done yet. Here's what you can do to help get that story the attention it deserves. You know, number one, share with friends and family. Here's the click to tweet website. Number two, you know, meet Annalisa, who are a writer who posted the Cheryl Strads webpage. Can you do that yourself? You know, who's the community that you're thinking about? Uh, and we help them think about who the communities are for those stories. So think back to the, the slide a few minutes ago. You know, obviously, I think, uh, let's, let's talk about this. Maybe you in the front row. So the, the widow's piece, you know, what's a community? Who would you, you know, who's the community of people that might really respond to this story and want to share it on social media or post it to their blog or their website? Anybody want to shout out any, any ideas you might have? I know it's early, but come on. Yeah. Absolutely. Bingo. That's, that's perfect. What else? What about, you know, what about communities of, I'm sure there's massive Facebook groups dedicated to widows, you know, women who have lost uh, a spouse or a partner or a loved one. You know, this is something, even though, even if you live in Brisbane, you might respond very powerfully to, you know, if you had just lost your, your husband or your partner or your wife, you might respond well to a piece about another side of the world, but people that are coping with something similar. Um, or women's rights groups, uh, or you know, dancing groups for that matter. So I think it's, you know, the more, the more feelers you put out there for those communities, the, the more response you might get. Um, or take the second example of, of the therapist story. You know, one, one interesting thing I just noticed today, catching up in emails this morning um, from my staff, is we had a very prominent psychologist in the US send out a tweet this morning to his like 300,000 followers with the link to this story. And, and that didn't happen organically. We actually sent him messages on Twitter, I think repeatedly for several days. And you can do that, you know, we could, of course are doing that as an organization, but honestly, the example I think of Cheryl Strayed uh, and the writer posting to her, I think maybe really proves that, and I personally as, a, as, a, as now a, you know, a head of a company, you know, 
it's one thing to get bombarded with information from other media outlets asking for favors, but I respond very well personally to individuals because you in the crowd are like me, uh, you know, and especially younger journalists who are doing now what I was trying to do five, ten years ago, I want to help you out. And, and I think it feels somehow very organic and very natural when you're supporting an individual rather than an organization. Um, and then the, you know, the third example with, with the boat battling the immigration storm, um, obviously immigration is a massive, you know, polarizing global issue now. There's no shortage of blogs and websites and massive mainstream media outlets that are reporting on this sort of thing. So reach out to them. Maybe they want to excerpt the story or link to it or republish it. And, and I'll get into in a moment about those various scenarios and how they work. Um, but point being, it's very important to think about the community. And, and, that, and, and thinking about that community doesn't just inform the outreach strategy, which is what we're talking about today, right? Audience development, building an audience, building outreach for that story. It also should inform the way you're writing headlines, uh, you know, the, the way you're crafting posts for social media for that story. Um, you know, I think these happen to be headlines that we wrote a while back. Now what we're really thinking about is everything we post to social media, for instance, you know, sure, we're talking about several communities for each of these pieces, but each one should have a core community you're reaching out to, and who is that core community, and how can you craft that, that story and present it in a way where that core community knows without fail, oh, this story is for me, this is about my people, you know, I want to share this thing and support these guys. Uh, so the way we, we basically work things at Narrative, this is a quick little snapshot of the sorts of, of media partnerships, or, or rather content partnerships that we do. So over on the left quadrant there, you have basically, you know, speaks for itself, what we do with other media outlets. So, you know, there's some really cool fancy logos there, and, and what we do with these organizations is a, is a massive range. Um, it includes, you know, outlets like Dig in the bottom left, which is really an aggregator, you know, gatekeeper of content. They love narratively, and, and thankfully, all they do is a few times a week we send them emails in the morning, and they link out to our stories on, on, on their homepage. And it's a, oftentimes a massive fire hose of story, of content, rather, and, and traffic, sorry, that is coming straight to us. Um, the other end of the spectrum, we republish stories in full with outlets like Refinery29. And I'll get into the, the fine print of how that works as well. So I think that's kind of a no-brainer. You know, when you're a journalist, whether you're, uh, you work for a, an, a larger organization or you're a freelancer yourself, you can take the initiative to reach out to these organizations and see if they have any interest in working on these stories. Now, granted, you know, the caveat here is as a freelancer, you know, your rights to that story really depend on the organization and the contract you have with them. But I know in the US, for instance, even with the New York Times, as a freelancer, don't quote me on this, but I think after 60 days, you're technically allowed to republish that story wherever you want. And obviously with narratively, a lot of the stories we're doing are what we call evergreen pieces, meaning they don't have an expiration date. So as a freelancer, I can and should, after that story runs, you know, hopefully on the front page of the New York Times, I can then pitch that story to BuzzFeed or Salon and have them refeature it. Now, obviously the challenge, of course, is if that story's already run on the front page of the New York Times, a lot of big outlets might not want it, but clearly not all of us are lucky enough to have our stories in the front page of the New York Times all the time. And so I think a lot of stories really don't get the attention they deserve and, and deserve to be Refeatured or reposted by other media outlets. Um, so we'll get into a bit more, and uh, just to don't, don't fear not, we're going to elaborate more on each of these buckets here. Um, on the bottom there, uh, as I said earlier, brands now are becoming publishers. And so a few logos at the bottom there of brands that we've worked with, mostly on an advertising level, you know, they're supporting and sponsoring our work. But the cool thing is that a series we're doing right now with Smartwool, which is a big outdoor uh, kind of apparel brand in the US. Um, they sponsored a series on Narratively, which is ongoing, called Keys to Freeze, which follows four young cyclists as they ride their bicycles from Key West, Florida to Dead Horse, Alaska, hence the term Keys to Freeze. And, uh, you know, the, the Smart Wool was, has been really instrumental in, in helping us find an audience for that work, in addition to doing, you know, Instagram takeovers in which the, the, the cyclists and our team 
are going out and posting to Smartwool's page, Smartwool now is creating a hub on their homepage, on their website, where some of our stories will live. And the cool thing there is, A, it's extra exposure for us. You know, Smartwool's audience, which probably isn't aware of Narratively, now is aware of what we're doing. Um, but also, Smartwool is now linking out to Narratively's stories straight from social media. Um, you know, what that means for freelancers, we'll get into in a moment. Uh, but again, it comes back to, I think, one of the rights issues. If your story has been featured uh, you know, on Salon or, or on um, you know, any other host of websites, and you do have the right to republish that story, you can start thinking about some of these organizations that are like-minded. Let's say you did a story about um, you know, Nick Fanning and, and, and you know, the, the, his shark encounter, which, of course, is getting reported everywhere. But let's say you had some unique angle. Uh, you know, maybe you can then pitch that story to uh, you know, a cool surf. Maybe Billabong wants that story as opposed to going straight to ABC. Um, so there's really interesting opportunities now as freelancers to kind of think creatively and think beyond the limitations that we've sort of dealt with. Um, and I think the cool thing now is that as freelancers, we're wising up to the fact that content that's being published straight to brand sites isn't just boring, you know, self-aggrandizing work anymore. You know, some of the stuff that these brands are publishing is just unbiased, uh, you know, great work that happen happens to be about their lifestyle. Um, you know, so Billabong, just, you know, I'm just making something up here, but, you know, maybe let's just say they're not writing about their new board shorts anymore, they're writing about cool surfers that are, that are living the lifestyle and represent and embody their brand. And of course they need really great content to fuel that relationship. Um, and on the right here, you know, you have basically what we're doing with social media. Um, so you have a mix of things you can do in social. Obviously, you know, narratively's budget as a still a startup is, is pretty small. So we don't really have much to play with in terms of paid promotion. And I'll get into what that means in a moment. Um, so we can really optimize our strategy, what we're doing on Facebook, how we're getting people to come back to us. And you, of course, can do that on an individual, individual level as well. Um, talking about crafting appropriate headlines and crafting messaging on social media, really treating each social media handle as if it's its own you know, friend of yours who's had a bad day, right? Let's say you have four best friends. You know, friend number one had a bad day. He or she wants to go to the pub and, and start pounding back some beers. That's the way he or she wants to recover. Let's say friend number two wants to get a, a bottle of wine and stay home with a pizza and, and commiserate. Friend three you know, maybe wants to you know, go for a long run and sweat it out. Point being that each of these friends has different needs and wants and, and ways that, that they want to be kind of feel special, same thing is true with social media. Uh, and that's what we're really learning now about now narratively a lot and re refining what we do, really handcrafting each message um, based on what really does well on, on social media. And there's a host of research out there, um, best practices from you know, the likes of BuzzFeed and, and, and outlets that have really arguably invented the game and, and invented the way we do things on social. Um, so I'm gonna elaborate a bit more now on what this all means. Um, you know, under media partnerships, there's basically three types. Um, you know, number one are the curators. So we have, you know, back to that early slide, you have the digs of the world and the Huffington Post of the world and, and um, you know, the news portals, the AOLs and the Yahoos and so forth that, you know, they just want links. They just want, they want you to come to their website, their homepage or, you know, increasingly their Facebook feeds or wherever else their content is living because they'll advertise around it, but then they'll just link straight out to people doing cool things. Um, so how does that work? Uh, you know, as a freelancer, like I said earlier, um, you know, Whereas you need rights, potentially, to republish that story on the New York Times or on Narratively if it's already been published somewhere else. Um, as a freelancer, though, you can reach out to outlets, some of these curators, and say, hey, listen, you know, I'm a freelance journalist based in Brisbane. I've just done this great story. It's, it just appeared on ABC. I thought it would be a great fit for your audience. Can you guys share it? Um, so basically, what we're talking about here, I call them angels. 
Um, you know, these are people that are really great. You know, they're, they're amazing people that are they're essentially giving you free exposure, right? Um, you know, they're licking out to you from their page because they, you know, yes, they have their own incentive and they're doing it for a reason. They want to build an audience on their site, but really they're sending people to you and sending people to your work. Um, now, obviously, you can get a little creative when, with, with regard to how you do this. Um, you know, oftentimes it comes down to a scratch my back, I'll scratch yours type of thing. So in our case, you know, dig. Um, I was saying a moment ago, this is a snapshot of the Dig homepage from a little while ago. If you notice there with the big arrow, this is Dig's homepage. Do, by the way, do you guys, you guys know Dig here? Is that as, in, in the US, they're, they have an interesting trajectory as a company. They were massive you know, five years ago, kind of disappeared, and then got bought for like a bargain basement price and are now kind of slowly rising up again. But, but you know, Dig links out to a store like this. Suddenly, Nardley's traffic for the day goes up you know, 100% or, or 500% because, again, it's this fire hose of, of traffic coming to us. Um, there's nothing stopping you as a freelancer from emailing Dig, their tip email, which is very, you know, obvious right on their homepage, um, with a link to a great story. You know, if anything, uh, you know, if, if there's a cool, obscure website in Australia that they've never heard of, but there's an amazing story you've done, that makes them look very cool, right? Because they want to share things and make and become thought leaders and, and make it feel like they, they have their, their finger on the pulse of the world. Um, so all of that is, I think, is, can be very effective, and I think you have to kind of step outside your comfort zone. And honestly, the worst that can happen when you're emailing the digs of the world or the Huffington Post of the world is no response. You know, uh, so you have to get used to that. You know, maybe you'll get one out of ten people writing back to you, but when that person writes back and expresses interest, next thing you know, your your story is getting the attention it deserves. That's a pretty good day for you. Um, so, so what kind of uh, curators? You know, we mentioned the HuffPost and the Port and the uh, Yahoo's AOLs. Obviously, you can think creatively about the local, national, and niche publications and blogs that might want to kind of uh, you know express some interest in your work. There's more. There's the communities out there which are which operate a bit more organically. Um, you know, we've tried several times to kind of gamify Reddit, if you will, and post things to it. It doesn't work. Uh, you kind of just have to, to to have a champion in there that will do it for you. But again, that goes back to what I was saying earlier about our freelancer, Annalisa, posting to her Facebook page. Get one of your contributors, who maybe is very active on Reddit, to post things there for you. Uh, and obviously, you know, he or she has a lot more credibility there than I do coming in as a nobody and, and you know, conspicuously posting something to the site and, and acting like your grandma using Facebook. You know, I don't know what I'm doing on Reddit, but other people do. Um, and then obviously there's a, you know, this is a, at the bottom there, a couple examples of, of you know, the, the thousands and thousands of email curators out there. You know, email is increasingly a very powerful medium um, through which to drive very loyal audiences to the site. Um, to this day, I have advertisers coming to Narratively saying, you know, Noah, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to advertise on your website, um, which is a little insulting, but they say, you know what, I'd love to be in your email because the engagement we see from people opening the email and the open rate is something like 40%, which is off the charts for, for media. They want to reach people like that where, where it's this ecosystem where people are used to, get, used to kind of being immersed and used to really clicking through. Whereas on the website, you know, there's a lot of things happening, a lot of bells and whistles, and people are constantly being distracted, and pop, things are popping up. Whereas email is a great way to, to get the attention those stories deserve. And you, you as individuals, you can email those curators. This is, again, long reads and long form is just kind of obvious for, for narrowly because we do a lot of long form. But you know, if, let's say you just did an environmental piece. You know, there are many people out there, organizations that, that run websites, but also maybe dedicated people that just individuals that have a, a big following now that curate the best of environmental stories from around the world. And you can, of course, use your journalism skills to build a list of those people and, and, and reach out to them. Um, and again, the same thing when you're reaching out to publications or, or um, you know, individual curators, you know, go back to lesson one, I said, you know, make it simple for them to help you. You, know, you want to keep it very crystal clear. What is your ask? What do you want them to do? And why should they do it? 
Uh, and the same thing, and, and the cool thing is that you guys all have a leg up in this room because as freelancers, you make your money and your living by selling editors on the right stories that they should publish. So obviously it makes sense that at, when you're reaching out and doing outreach for a story, you should have the same kind of crystal clear messaging and really that same sort of salesmanship or saleswomanship that you do when selling a story. Um, you know, the second type of media partner here, you know, I call co-opters, you know, keeping with the alliteration theme, uh, collaborators, co-opters, curators. Um, so co-opters, you know, here's a guy running off with money, you know, a bandit. And, you know, what co-opters are really, they're the outlets out there that want to republish your stories in full. They say, you know what, tough luck, kiddo. I'm not going to link out to you and send you 5,000 visits to your story. I will republish your story because I need content and my advertisers want more eyeballs for, for our website. Will you give it to me? And I think this is where you kind of have to, you know, negotiate. In the early days, you know, we were always very careful about this, but let's just say I was a little too eager to get narratively stories featured on some big websites. So we gave some stories to them. Um, here's an example on Refinery29, which is a big, big site based out of the US. And you'll notice the branding there on the bottom left. And if you scroll down the story a little bit, you'll see links to our to narratively original stories. The reality, though, is that that doesn't really send much traffic to our website. Um, you know, for instance, when's the last time you were reading a a story with an engaging headline like this and clicked off onto something else. You just, we don't, you just don't do that. that. That's not what our habits um, are all about as, as, as readers uh, or viewers. So, you know, I, I noticed after testing this out, and I'm not just singling them out. I mean, they're a great relationship and we're building on this now. But, but anytime one of your stories gets republished by an outlet, the chances of, a, of it sending traffic to your personal blog or your Facebook handle or what have you is very, very small. Um, but what we do now is we negotiate. Uh, and I work with outlets like Refinery29. I'm talking to them now and saying, you know what? We've tried this before. Thank you again for, your, you know, for enjoying narratively and working with us here. I want to try to ignite our partnership a little bit, right? So I'll give you stories. I'll gladly give you five stories a month or 10 stories a month to republish, to co-opt. But in exchange for that, we need to come to some sort of agreement. So how about this? How about I give you my story, but in exchange, you're going to do five dedicated posts on social media linking straight out to me. And you might say, oh, I can't do five, but what about two? And I'll throw in a Twitter link and blah, blah, blah. So it's a, you know, it's a constant negotiation. And then, of course, I'll get into a little bit later, you, know, you want to really be obsessive over the data. And OK, let's say we agree to this negotiated deal here. I want to then monitor that deal and make sure, you know, how is that working out? You know, are they sending me the traffic that they, they said they could? Um, and you can, of course, do this as freelancers. Again, going back to if you own the rights to that story, um, you can go to that, uh, that same outlet and, and, and try to get them to you know, grow your Facebook following or grow your own traffic to your website. And so again, it goes back to the crystal clear goals. What are your goals as a freelancer? Do you want to get more work? Do you want to direct people to your portfolio site so they can see the other great work you've done? Um, you know, do you want to get stories sold to them? Let's say I, you know, I've been. You know, working off the assumption that you're, this is work that's already been published and you want to re-feature, but let's say this is a story you have from scratch, hasn't been published yet, you want to publish with Refinery29, let's say they don't want to pay you for it, because most, unfortunately, a lot of digital outlets don't want to pay, we do, um, unfortunately not a lot yet, but we do pay. Um, but let's say they want your story for free, which increasingly happens with digital media, why not negotiate and say, okay, cool, I'll give you the story for free, but you know what, I'm really trying to grow my Twitter followers right now. So you know, in exchange for giving you my story for free, will you do five tweets on your Twitter handle, you know, show, you know, showcasing, you know, using my Twitter handle and sending links to other work that I've published across the web. And, you know, be open to negotiation and be open to their coming back to you and playing hardball. But, you know, it might work out for you. Um, so the examples of some co-opters, uh, you know, it's very similar to the last example, I guess. You know, publications, blogs. Um, 
traditional media outlets, HuffPo, Yahoo, AOL, you know, the portals out there don't just send out links. They also actually do like to publish or increasingly publish stories in full. Uh, and if you have great content, um, that can be a bit of a leg up for you. Um, so lesson two really is, you know, be a creative negotiator. Don't settle. Um, you know, be open for people coming back to you and, and wanting more than you're willing to give them. Um, and you know what, I think the, the, going back to that slide with the little baby birds opening their mouths, people are hungry for content right now. And I think you have to, you know, believe in yourself, believe in the value of your work, obviously be professional and intelligent about that because, you know, you have to know that for everyone, you know, for every person like you in the audience, there are millions of other people out there like you with stories, but if you believe in yourself and believe in your reporting enough and know that what you're doing is unique, I think that'll provide some confidence for you when you're talking about negotiation. Um, back to what I said a moment ago about, uh, you know, being obsessive over data. So here's, if you, if you Google um, URL builder um, or Google URL builder, this basically is a way for you to post a link to your story into this form here and provide some key terms. Uh, you know, this is a partnership. This is a story that I'm giving to Refinery29. It's going to be featured on, on social media. If you look at the link at the bottom there, this basically is a way for you to create a trackable link. So when, when you do negotiate with, uh, you know, ABC to publish your story for free but to give you some Twitter traffic and response, you can actually track and see how many, how many visitors are they really sending you. Um, and basically, this, uh, once you set up Google Analytics, which I think many of you have maybe heard of, it's a free service Google provides. It allows you to be obsessive over tracking the traffic to your website and blog and so forth. You can then look at how this link is performing um, in, in social media. Because um, if you think about it, if I just send uh, Dig a link to narrative.ly and they push it out on their Facebook page, I have no idea that, that that traffic came from Dig's Facebook page. I know it came from Facebook, but I don't know where and how it, it came to me. And so this is a way for you to really you know, after you negotiate and get that deal you think is appropriate, really follow up on it and make sure that you're actually being delivered the value that these brands and publishers are saying they're delivering you. Um, so lesson three is really get serious about data. Um, because if you don't, you know, you don't really know what kind of deal you're getting from this organization. The third type of media partner, which I think is one of the most exciting, uh, let's call it collaborators. So these are, let's say you work, let's say you freelance for a small publisher, and let's say you, you labor away over that environmental piece, and you're lucky if that piece gets 2,000 page views on that story. Um, you know, maybe that's great, but I, you know, I happen to think great work should see a much larger audience than, than 2,000 people. Um, and, and I think for the most part, let's say that small publisher is very busy, uh, you know, doesn't have the time to do this outreach that we're talking about today. What you might do is suggest to that, that let's say it's uh, AussieEnvironment.com, which well, is a cool URL, actually. Someone should buy that. Um, you know, let's say you work for that website, and your editor says, oh, hey, uh, Noah, you know, cool, your story got 2,000 page views. Great, send us more ideas, and we'd love to do this again next time. And I'd say, whoa, 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 you know, that's, that's not good enough. Um, have you guys thought about republishing the story with uh, ABC? Or, or what about next time when I do this, what if we co-produce the series with ABC, and that way they'll repost to their website, which gets 100 million visitors a month, and that'll help us grow this thing a little bit more. So collaborations are all about you know, taking advantage of you know, your place as a small publisher or as a large publisher and working out uh, some kind of co-publishing or co-creation arrangement that works for both parties. So here's just a, a quick little example. Um, back in, I think it was February, the, the, the NBA, National Basketball Association playoffs, um, were happening in the US. We decided to team up with, a, a, you know, relatively speaking, a bigger publication called Slam Magazine, which is a, a pretty famous basketball magazine in the US. They still come out in print and have a pretty large uh, digital audience. 
And you know, this was a natural collaboration because Narratively has become known for finding these unique, untold human stories. Slam is known for covering the headlines and getting access to these big LeBron Jameses and NBA stars of the world and having the big audience and reach to, to back it up. So really what we're talking about here is Narratively brings the quality, Slam Magazine brings the scale, i.e. the massive audience. So if we work together and co-produce something, it's a win-win, right? Because we're we're, we're, we're finding great stories. Slam is then featuring them on their website and driving massive reach and awareness about that. And everyone, everyone goes to bed happy at night. Um, another example is something we did with um, WNYC, which is the National Public Radio NPR affiliate based out of New York. Um, similar thing, they approached us and said, hey, we're big fans of what you do. Um, they, of course, have a much larger audience than we do. They're, for the most part, doing mostly radio, whereas we're doing multimedia. So really, we're, th we're talking about complementary skill sets here, complementary audiences, complementary niches, complementary you know, ways that you tell storytelling. So we worked with um, WMIC Radio to co-produce a series called My Secret New York Sanctuary, all about where New Yorkers go to unplug and find their solitude. And it was a great scenario. In, in this particular instance, um, you know, narratively went out and found the story ideas. We then, you know, you know, reported and edited them ourselves, but then sat down with WMIC's professional sound engineers and turned them into sh three, four, five-minute audio pieces that ran on, on air, broadcasts. But then we drove WMIC drove traffic back to our website for the multimedia elements of that story. So it was this really interesting you know, collaboration because both parties were, were bringing something new to the table. And I think as freelancers, there's a lot you can do to encourage this sort of collaboration from your employers. Um, or for that matter, go directly to both these outlets and be the matchmaker. You know, I, I would love it if one of you came to me and said, hey Noah, you talked about collaborations in your keynote this morning. You know, I work, you know, I freelance all the time for so-and-so publication based out of Brisbane. There's a really cool audience, you know, uh, partnership with a, or a company rather with a lot larger following based out of Sydney. What if we were to approach them together and say, hey, Narratively wants to collaborate with these, these two or three other outlets and do something really special? I would love to talk about that, right? So I think those are ideas that you can have as journalists. And I think that, in a way, too, gives you a leg up with your, your editors because it, it shows them you're able to think creatively. You're not just a content producer anymore, you're an audience builder. And obviously, it makes those editors look good when they can go to their staff and, and say, hey, listen, you know, this great freelancer out of Britain Brisbane just gave me this awesome idea. This is the biggest series we've had traffic-wise in a decade. Let's hire this person full-time. You know, so you never know what will happen there. Um, types of collaborators, you have, again, you know, kind of larger or smaller publications, so you know, complementary skills, um, you know, organizations that have a certain style or distribution that you don't have. Um, so really, you're, it's all about matchmaking here. It's like uh, you know, setting up two friends on a date and figuring out how they can really operate well together. Um, really quick, do you have a, we have a few more minutes? Two more minutes, okay, cool. I'm just gonna run quickly through um, brand partnerships, uh, you know, how you can work with brands. So here's just a quick little screenshot of the logo for a series we're doing with Keys to Freeze uh, that I mentioned. So Smartwool is the sponsor. We took these Explore cyclists, uh, are doing great stories, and Smartwool now, the brand, is, is, is giving us money for it. You know, they're, to be clear, they're not involved in the storytelling, but they're, they're the advertiser, but they're now publishing it on their website. Um, same thing's true with, uh, you know, traditional uh, or other brands such as, um, this is Expedia, the travel website. We did a series with them that was co-published on their own, own site. I have a couple more, can we, can we have three minutes? This is very important stuff. Um, so, you know, sometimes you think of, of paid promotion on social media as this dark art, right? Where, oh my gosh, I can't go down that line. You know, that's, that's very scary. Um, but really it's not. And I'm gonna talk very quickly and then we'll answer, open up the questions about 
the way distribution works. Um, so there's really two types of, of distribution. Um, you have networks, which you pay to be a part of. Uh, Outbrain is one example. Uh, you've probably seen Outbrain before. You know, they charge on a, on a cost per click basis. Um, here's a little screenshot where you, you might have noticed I'm sure there's some service like them in Australia if you don't have them here, where you scroll down to the bottom of a story and you have these little teeny you know, squares that link out to other stories. And it'll say in the, the bottom right, recommended by Outbrain. In a lot of cases, you know, this website right here is paying Outbrain to be featured on your website. Um, and they're paying Outbrain a few cents per every time someone clicks through to that. Um, you know, that's, I just wanted to give you that as an example. That's not quite as easy to do as a freelancer because it's pretty costly if you think about it. Um, what you can do as a freelancer, though, is paid social media promotion. So, you know, very simple here. Uh, and this, I'm talk, let's talk about Facebook for a moment. So Facebook obviously is a beast, and Facebook is, is infamous for changing the algorithm every single day. You don't quite know, you know if your story will get read, if it won't. Um, and of course, they're doing that because they want to encourage you and your bosses to pay to promote stories. But you can do a very small-scale test to pay for stories and see how it works out. So here's an example of a great short film we published uh, about six months ago. It was produced by a, a winner from the Grand uh, Jury Prize at Sundance, a very reputable storyteller. Um, we posted this on our, on our Facebook page. And you might notice, when you post things to your page, you'll see a little uh, kind of button in the bottom right-hand corner that says Boost, Boost Page. And what that basically means when you click that is a little box pops up and it allows you to target you know, pretty, actually pretty eerily in a very scary way. You can be very specific about the types of people you want to reach with that story. So here an example, I said I want to reach people that like video that are based in the US, UK, Australia, Canada, people between those age brackets and here are their you know, designated interests on social media. Uh, you click save, you spend your 200 bucks and here's what we got for it. So we did a, you know, a small test with $200 spend. Obviously, Maybe $200 is not small if you're an individual, but you can try it for $10. Um, and you know, this showed us how many people actually saw the story, how many people clicked it. You know, if you do the math on it, you know, it still comes out to be about like 50 cents per every click. And that all comes down to what's the value of a click on Facebook. You know, if, if your number one goal as a freelancer is to grow your Facebook following, maybe it's worth it for you to get 500 clicks on a story because there's more exposure for you. Um, so this comes down to you know, lesson four is you know, have a well-defined plan um, or goal, rather, and have actually a plan that you map out to achieve those goals. So if your goal, like narrowly right now, one of our big goals is growing our Facebook audience, a lot of what we're doing right now comes down to how do we grow that audience. So if you've been to our site in recent days, you might have noticed we have a pop-up now that comes on the site seven seconds after you land on the site asking you to like us on Facebook. And the crazy thing is that you might think those pop-ups are annoying, but you know, in just about a week, our likes on Facebook have gone way up because it's very simple to click that like button. Uh, and so everything we do now, or a lot of what we do, comes back to our trying to build that massive audience on Facebook. So really, point being that have a crystal clear plan um, as a freelancer for what you want to build and, and, and what is the audience you really want and where is the audience important to you. Is it, is it important to build an audience on your website, your blog, on your social media handles? And that'll help you kind of map out a strategy for where you want to go as a freelancer. At the end of the day, um, you know, I personally think that you know, cream rises to the top, so quality really will be noticed. Um, our philosophy at Narrowly is niche is the new mass. We try to really rise above the noise again by focusing on authenticity and quality. Um, unfortunately, we all know that scum rises to the top too, uh, so we have a lot of you know, competition with the clickbait and the breaking news headlines out there, but I think we'll all be uh, successful in the end, and I hope this was helpful. So thank you very much. Really appreciate it. following the protocol of raising your hand and stating your name and then getting into your questions. We've got a couple of microphones around. Hi, Noah. Um, I just had a question about um, audience and segmentation of audience um, and how you weigh up 
somebody who just clicks like on Facebook and how you, um, I suppose, gauge that depth of engagement and if you value somebody differently who just likes on Facebook compared to somebody who goes from being a reader to actually being a contributor and yeah, probably that's a that model. Great question. So um, basically, you know, he's asking about kind of how do you how do you value um, someone who likes you on Facebook? And, and I think you know the business term what you're really referring to is known as customer lifetime value, right? So like how much is a customer or a reader you know worth to me? And I think at the end of the day that comes down to you know uh, not to get too wonky, but like what your business model is. So right, if, if we're an advertising model um, and you know, uh, Woolies is paying me X amount of money for an ad, and I have 10,000 visitors to the site, I can do the math there and figure out, okay, cool, for every ad I have on the site, one customer is worth X. And I know that my company is increasing over time, so X will only grow over time. Um, but that's, you know, that's a little complicated and, and frankly boring. We're here to talk about storytelling. So, um, you know, I think for, the easy way to answer that question is, um, you know, the re and the reason why, really, we're, we're trying to grow Facebook right now is because we looked at um, sort of like pound for pound, apples for apples, how much traffic we were getting from all these different places we were working with. Like Dig, for instance, you know, was sending us, let's say, like 50,000 visitors a month. And Facebook you know, was maybe sending us 40,000, but it was based off of only having like 22,000 followers on Facebook. And so if you think about it that way, oh my gosh, we're getting this much traffic from Facebook. We're only posting 50, 20 times a week. Can you imagine if we grew Facebook 100% and doubled our audience there, we're going to see potentially double or even triple the traffic there because Facebook, again, is always changing the way they do things, but um, you know, they, Facebook really um, kind of uh, values, obviously, larger, larger reach. So the more followers you have, it's not just like if I doubled my followers from 20,000 to 40, I would get double the traffic. I actually might even get like triple or quadruple the traffic because like it's this exponential growth there. Now, they might change that tomorrow, um, but I think obviously Facebook is, is they're existing now because they, their, their goal really is to serve great information and quality and connect people. And so you, you can only hope that having high quality stories on Facebook will only continue to, to make you in a better position down the line. So really for us, it comes down to that. It's figuring out like, how much, you know, what's the, what's the value of a Facebook visitor versus a visitor coming to us from Twitter? And we can see, for instance, I mean, it's a great example, actually. Twitter, you know, we have less followers than Facebook, but, you know, let's say it's about half as many followers, but we only get about a quarter of the traffic from there. And so, and that's simple, because people are using Twitter for different reasons, maybe. They're not clicking through to stories. They, maybe it's more of a conversation. Um, so if our goal is to grow the audience, we know we want to go to Facebook to do that, because that's where we're getting the biggest bang for our buck, so to speak. Adrian Glamorgan from Fremantle. Um, how do you grow uh, your quality stories with young people? So in terms of uh, reaching young people as an audience? So I think, you know, for us, um, I don't know if we really intended to do this. I mean, if, if you had asked me, like, when I first started thinking about narrowly five years ago, who do I anticipate the audience being, you know, I, I don't know. I might have said, oh, people that read The New Yorker or people that read The New York Times, which is true. You know, we have, we have a lot of people who do that coming to the site. What's been interesting for us, though, is that as our core network of contributors have grown, I've realized that there's a huge overlap between our contributors and our readers. You know, like with the, the 2,000 people that are writing for us around the world or producing video or whatever, they're our biggest fans in many cases because, you know, this is what they do and this is the type of work they love to consume. So we've been very lucky that, um, 
I mean, not lucky because it's not, you know, I mean, I'd love to have an older audience too, and we do. You know, we have a very diverse audience. Obviously, like, advertisers love to have, you know, the young millennial audience. And so I think for us, you know, kind of happened organically because, you know, we appeal to a lot of freelancers. Freelancers, in, in many cases, tend to be younger. Um, so that just happened organically. But I think if you're out there, uh, or, or even you're me, and you want to grow the younger audience, um, think about where that younger audience is living. I mean, obviously, Facebook is one place, which is maybe why, you know, we're, we're growing on Facebook. We want to reach that younger audience. But, but going back to what I was talking about, collaborations, um, you know, maybe look at what's the, what's the big so Vice. You know, Vice, for instance, obviously has, a, has an incredibly young audience. You know, maybe you try to form some kind of partnership with Vice. And by the way, Vice is very difficult to do that with because they get tons of interest because everyone wants that younger audience. But if you have some very unique value you can bring to them, you know, if you're doing something that Vice isn't, um, you know, that's an interesting opportunity there. So really, you want to kind of, there's a reason why uh, I don't know if you guys are, are as familiar with Snapchat here and what Snapchat's doing with media partners. They have this thing called Snapchat Discover, where they have a dozen or so big media partners from National Geographic to Cosmopolitan Magazine and, and you know, everyone in between. And the reason why that they're even doing that is because these media publishers realize, you know what, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel here. I'm not going to waste time trying to get Snapchat 15-year-olds to come to ABC's website. I want to reach them directly on Snapchat where they already live. And in many ways, that's really exciting. It's also a little bit disturbing because many of us you know, came of age in journalism thinking, oh, the holy grail is building a massive homepage that has 50 million people and you'll laugh your way to the bank. The reality now is that I think those days are over of building that massive audience. The homepage in many ways is dead. The, home, the new homepage is Snapchat and Facebook and other places. So I think if you can try to, to reach people where they already are, and you don't need a, a, a media partner like me to do that, you can do that on your own. You, know, you can start posting really interesting, look at Humans of New York as a great example. The guy, I don't even know what the number is now, 15 million followers on Facebook. I get very jealous about it, by the way, because we're kind of doing the same thing in, in a you know, more in-depth way. Um, but I think the reason why he's so successful is because he's doing it on Facebook where you already are. You, know, you don't have the extra step of clicking through. Like He doesn't want you to click through. He wants you to do it right there and then click share and like. And that's a very easy ask. I know. Um, as somebody who's paid, um, I, I regarded reasonably well for a long period of time to do for a big organization, um, whether I did stories that they ran or not, I've got a keen sense now about what I think the stories are worth or what would make it worthwhile. Mm -hmm. What do you pay for? Give us a. Can you give us a ballpark range for what you're prepared to pay for certain kinds yeah. of stories because I, th that does um, focus my attention at the moment as I think about the sorts of things that I'd like to do and where I'd like to place them. But mm -hmm. I have a bit of a sense of my own worth at the same time. Right, yeah. So, um, well, there's two answers to that question. You know, what I'm prepared to pay is a lot more than what I'm able to pay right now. Uh, you know, I hope to get to the point fairly soon where we're paying, you know, pretty competitive rates. I think the sad truth is that you know, even though our rates are pretty modest. So to give you an example, um, you know, the ranges for our stories really are from, you know, a hundred bucks a pop to, to several hundred. And really we're maxing out at like four or five hundred bucks and, it, you know, so it's not, not great. Um, the sad thing though is that it is actually great compared to a lot of digital publishers out there who don't want to pay anything. Um, and, you know, the way we kind of, you know, make it work for the short term at least is, you know, when you publish a story with Narratively, uh, we work very hard to find collaborators and, and co-opters, as I said in the, in the remarks, that will 
hopefully pay us to republish that story, and then we split the, the revenue with you as a freelancer. So hopefully that adds a little bit to what we paid you from the get-go. Um, number two is that we're now represented by um, a big Hollywood talent agency called William Morris Endeavor. If anybody saw the, the HBO uh, series Entourage, like that's the agency that it's based off of. And they're helping us position our stories to Hollywood producers, the Steven Spielbergs of the world, hopefully, to turn our stories into the next big blockbuster film or the next big you know, award-winning book, et cetera. And if and when that happens, which if, oh, don't get me wrong, it's a long shot, but if that ever happens, we split that revenue with the contributor as well. So we're building this kind of long tail where you know, you're not just publishing with us and getting exposure, which I think is, you know, it's great, but it's also kind of bullshit. You know, oh, cool, give me your story for free. I'll give you exposure, the big dirty E word. Uh, but I think if you hopefully factor in these other, other opportunities, it starts to grow. And the last thing we're doing, which actually I sh probably should have said first, because it's like kind of the most important, at least for the moment, is in addition to running our, you know, online publication, Narrative.ly, we also have built up a creative agency we call Narratively Creative, uh, in which we do work for clients. So, you know, really interesting clients out, out there such as, ranging from, you know, NGOs in the U.S., such as the Woodrow Wilson Center for Scholars, to brands like Chevrolet and, uh, you know, Pernod Ricard, the big beverage company, they're now hiring us to produce storytelling for them. And the cool thing there is that, you know, let's say you, you, you did a story for Narratively two weeks ago and I only paid you 200 bucks for it. Um, when I get Pernod Ricard knocking on the door next week and they say, hey, we need a story about X, I can get you to do it and pay you 10 times that amount of money. Um, so, you know, it doesn't, doesn't quite make up for the fact that we're not able to pay great rates for this journalism, but I think it, at least it helps you pay your bills and helps, the, it's kind of a bridge for us for the short term until we can start paying you much more competitive rates on, in the first place. Noah, I was interested to hear you mention Snapchat Discover and I wondered how you think things like Facebook instant articles change the landscape across the media, but especially for freelancers, I guess, um, and also how you guys fit into the equation when um, platforms are bringing stories into their own platforms. Yeah, I think, I think it's a, I personally think it's a very exciting time. You know, on the one hand, it's a little, it's a little frustrating for me because, you know, again, I said a few minutes ago, I, you know, I think many of us came of age, you know, thinking the holy grail was building this massive audience and like building an audience as big as Huffington Post or whatever. And I feel like in many ways that's not possible anymore and certainly not with the type of stories we're doing, which I think is a good thing, by the way. I think we'd be doing something wrong if we had an audience of a billion people because clearly, you know, if you try to create something that appeals to everyone, you're, you're going to appeal to no one. Um, so I think, so I'll say that. Um, you know, I think though at the same time it's very exciting. It's unnerving because in a way what Facebook's doing is, is forcing the publisher to give up some control. Um, the reason why the New York Times of the world and so forth are doing it is because they think they have more, and I think rightfully so, they think they have more to gain by working with Facebook than going against them. Uh, the idea being that, you know, working, posting natively to Facebook, which the Times is doing, and a couple people as part of like an actual structured program, you're reaching a massive audience and you're getting revenue you wouldn't normally get otherwise. Now granted, you're splitting that revenue 50-50 or whatever it is with Facebook, which you wouldn't do if those ads were coming straight to your site, but you're obviously getting a much more audience and bringing much more money than you would without them. Um, I mean, I would love, if anybody from Snapchat's listening, I would love, to, or Facebook, I would love to be one of those partners. Clearly, we don't have enough, I think, expo you know, um, I think the credibility is there, you know, but we don't have that, uh, you know, awareness yet about us where Facebook would come directly to us. I'm hoping that's going to change and I hope in the next six months when, you know, I don't know, Tumblr announces a thing like this where people are posting natively, I hope we're one of the people they come to and, and that would be great. But I think like in a way it's helpful too because we can see what happens with Facebook and then if we notice, oh my God, that's really cool and they're doing great things and, you know, they're building a massive audience around it, maybe then I can find the right person at Facebook, knock on his or her door and say, hey, by the way, we're here too. And you know what? We're doing great stories as well. 
better than better than the New York Times, um, you know, you should work with us. So. All right. Thank you so much, Noah. That wraps up our first session. Yes, please yeah. join me. Thank you, Noah. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates to be the first to know about upcoming Walkley events and news.